Now, when you came in, we handed you a bulletin that has a list of events and opportunities on the back, like our membership class, which begins next Sunday. Uh, And in two weeks, there's something called Breakfast with Missionaries. So several of our members have recently gone overseas, and they've come back, and they have some great stories to tell. So we'll throw a breakfast. We're going to make pancakes. Make sure you sign up for that so we know how many pancakes to make. And we're even going to, I think, Skype in our long-term missionaries in Africa. If you are looking on the bulletin on our app, our iPhone app, our Android app, uh, you'll notice even more events and opportunities that we didn't have room for in the print bulletin. I also put something in there, uh, a recommended study page, uh, videos and books that you can uh, peruse if you would like to delve further into the topic that we're going to be talking about today. If you're new here, thanks for coming. Maybe someone invited you. Uh, You have come in the middle of a sermon series, but don't worry, I'm going to catch you up very quickly. Uh, Those of you who have been around for the past few weeks know that we have been journeying through an ancient letter written 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus by a preacher named Paul. And you've probably picked up on a theme. We hit this theme each and every week of this series. And that theme is that Christians uh, depend on and give their life to the, the work of Jesus to save us and to bring us into his kingdom, into the good life. We don't depend on, rely on our own efforts, our own productivity, uh, following a list of rules, uh, what, what the Bible calls following the law, the commandments uh, in the Bible. We depend on the work of Christ to bring us into his family. So when you heard today's text a few minutes ago, you might have been thinking, okay, I get it. We rely on on faith, not the law. It's our faith in God's grace, not our observance of the law. Let's move on. But often we know something intellectually, although our emotions and our actions tell a different story. Or we we know something, we assent to something, uh, we agree with a theological position, but we don't really get how that theological belief uh, works its way into our marriages and our parenting and our work life and our friendships. So I have a series of five questions that I would like to begin with. Think about these five questions. The first is, do you believe that God is loving but can't see how he could be particularly fond of you? I've struggled with this one myself throughout my life. Number two, do you feel like you don't get enough credit for the good things you do. That could be at work, that could be at home, that could be anywhere. Three, do you feel others are unfairly holding you back from being as successful, effective, or important as you could be? Number four, do you feel a sense of burden or loss when you serve and give rather than joy? Now, that could be serve and give through the church or just any area of your life. And number five, do you often feel like you need a break from ministry while conversely, feeling guilty about needing a break. Now think about your answers to those questions. And then let me tell you the story of Max and Ava. Max and Ava met in college. They were actually MBA students. And Max fell fast. It was love at first sight. He did everything he could to win Ava's heart, got himself a new wardrobe, new haircut, uh, some contact lenses, got himself in the best shape of his life rededicated himself to his studies because Ava was sharp and Ava liked sharp men. Whatever he did, he did with gusto because he wanted 
to be the perfect man for Ava. Max's quote-unquote why, his mission statement, his reason for being was to win Ava's heart. And it worked. They got married and they spent a life together. But Max could never accept that Ava loved him freely, although she told him and she showed him daily. Max performed for her throughout his life, struggling to earn the love that she'd freely given. He was a workout fiend, kept in great shape for Ava. He was a lavish gift giver. He was a great provider, worked hard. Max always suspected that Ava loved the kids more, her parents more, her church more. Soon, Max began to be jealous of any attention that any male showed Ava, from co-workers to the postman. He was angry for much of his life, and his anger hurt Ava, although she always loved him. Max's why was to earn Ava's love, and this why came from a place of deep insecurity. The irony is that in striving to earn her love, he did not love her well. Now, final question. Do you see yourself in Max? And although this story was about marriage, if any area of your life is characterized by this kind of striving, then you may be living by law rather than by grace. We Christians know the right things to say about law and grace, but the way we relate to others speaks louder than our ability to recite theology. And there's a strong connection between the way we relate to God and the way we relate to others. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, If we don't love people, we can see how can we love God whom we cannot see. When our relationship with people is out of alignment, our relationship with God is too. And conversely, when our relationship with God is out of alignment, our relationship with others will be sooner or later. So when any area of our lives is out of alignment, we must dig deep because there's a good chance we'll discover that the underlying cause is our relationship with God. We're living by law rather than by faith. We'll learn more about Max and Ava in a bit. You may yet see yourself in one or both of them. Uh, If not, and if you answered no to all of those five questions, then congratulations, you're a swell person, but still pay attention because this text may help someone that you know and love. So let's dive in. Galatians 3, verse 10. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. Now, this phrase, to be made right, means to be justified, which is to be declared righteous, to stand in God's favor. Attempting to be made right by our performance or by rule-keeping means we are cursed. We are cutting ourselves off from the good life with God by rejecting the work of the one he sent to bring us into that good life. Even if we leave out implications for the afterlife, where you go when you die. Attempting to be saved by works leads to lifelong insecurity and anxiety. We can never be sure where we stand. So this 
makes us sensitive to criticism, jealous, intimidated by those who outshine us. Maybe you see yourself in one of those phrases. We're either timid because we're unsure of where we stand or we're blustering because we're trying to convince ourselves and others of where we stand. So verse 11, it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This phrase, has life, means to be in fellowship with God. You're in his family now and forever. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Next, he quotes from another part of the Old Testament, which seems to disagree. Paul writes, this way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. This is a callback to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, which says, if you obey my decrees and regulations, you will find life through them. So which is it? Is Paul saying Habakkuk is right, Leviticus is wrong? Well, not really. It is true that through obeying the law, a person finds life. But the only one who has ever done it, whoever could do it, is Jesus. Not since our ancestor Adam first sinned in the Garden of Eden has anyone other than Jesus been able to be made right by doing the works of the law. And we can't blame, blame Adam either. God in his fairness, in his fairness, gave us the representative we deserve when he gave us Adam in the Garden of Eden. The one who did what we would do when faced with temptation. And we prove that every day. The curse of trying to obey the law gets passed down through the generations Because even the best, most well-intentioned parents and caregivers and grandparents and pastors often fail to communicate, do this because we love you and we have learned from God who loves you that this is the way to a happy life. Instead, we communicate, often unintentionally, do this and I will love you. Do this and I will approve of you. Don't do that. Don't do this. If you refrain, God will think you're a good person. And this cycle, trying to be made right by the law, repeats itself in our kids and our grandkids. Verse 10, those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. Let's revisit Max and Ava, and this time... Look at their careers, because remember, uh, we said that if your relationship with God is out of alignment, then other areas of your life will be sooner or later. You'll recall that Max and Ava met as MBA students. They each got jobs, and on the surface, they seemed quite similar. Uh, They were a big help to their companies. They were bright. They were industrious. They were efficient. They were creative, innovative, but their motivations were different. Max needed to prove himself to Ava, of course, to the company founder, to the memory of his father who had always made him feel like he didn't quite measure up. Ava loved her work. She was grateful to be able to help clients with problems that they had. She loved to collaborate. She was glad when her coworkers received raises and promotions. Ava's why her mission, 
Her reason for working the way she did seemed to be coming from a different place than Max's. In the first few years of their careers, it was hard to tell which of them was the better worker. Maybe even Max had the advantage because he could really get stuff done. But I'd rather work with Ava or for Ava or with Ava as my assistant or client or supplier. Max's why and the places why is coming from will eventually lead him to project a false image, to, to put himself over his co-workers, to sabotage others to make himself look good, to compromise on the quality of his product so he can appear more productive. Or he'll go the complete opposite direction. Because he's upset that he hasn't gotten the recognition he deserved, the raises, the promotions, he'll just start phoning it in. He doesn't care anymore. Maybe start stealing the company pen because after all, if they would pay me a decent amount, I'd be able to afford Bix on my own. Why is Ava different? Verse 13, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. The scripture reference here is the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. For everyone who is hung from a tree is cursed in the sight of God. In, in the days of the early church, uh, a lot of followers of the law, followers of the Old Testament, couldn't understand why anyone would follow Jesus because of this very verse. They'd say, he, he was hung on a tree. He's cursed. He can't be God's anointed. He's, he's God's cursed. He was hung on a tree. And that was the very point. Christ took upon himself our curse. He was telling God the Father in doing so, treat me as if I was a sinner. Make me liable for every wicked thing, for every wicked thought, for every wicked action every person ever has done or ever will do. Verse 14, through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Jesus took upon himself the curse we earned and gave us the blessing that he earned. And through the Spirit, we not only have forgiveness of sins, but the living presence of God within us and full privileges of the promise to Abraham, this Jewish patriarch who lived 2,000 years before Christ and through whom God had vowed to bless the entire world. You learned a little bit about Abraham last week. You'll learn a little bit more about him next week. So we, through Christ, are treated as if we are the firstborn son of Abraham. Doesn't matter if you're not Jewish. Doesn't matter if you're not a male. But how does this radical teaching of what God has done for us make its way into our hearts so we don't just know it on an intellectual level, but we feel it way down deep? It comes to us as we continuously move through the truth of today's text. And we see Christ's sacrifice as the embodiment of love. As this same teacher Paul expressed in another letter, Romans chapter 5, he said, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time 
and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. When we look at the love demonstrated on the cross, we can't help but think, really, am I that bad? I can see Christ having to spend a night in jail for my sins, maybe receive a good stern talking to from Pilate, but that, the most bloodthirsty death that the most cruel empire in the history of the world could devise, that, and I start to examine my life. I start to examine the things that I've done, the things that I've said to people, the things that I've thought, the things that I, I struggle thinking with all the time, things that no one else knows about except the one who sacrificed himself for me. Oh, he, he knows that? Pretty bad. Worse than I thought. We become aware of this utter helplessness that Paul wrote about. This knowledge that we can't fix ourselves. And this is where healing and transformation take place. When you know Jesus loves you that much, in spite of your failure, you trust him enough to confess that you need him to make you righteous. And it's only from this place of confession and repentance and forgiveness that we can know what freedom feels like. We begin to experience a deepening gratitude and a compassion for others because we realize that we're all in the same boat. This leads us back to marveling at God's love for us in an ever-expanding cycle that enables us to feel more and more secure. We don't change if we don't feel secure. Rules don't change people in the long run. Security changes people. A deep and abiding knowledge that God loves us and he has provided the way to be with him and experience the good life that he made us for. His love is not based on our performance. We see this even in the relationship between God the Father and Jesus. If you'll remember when Jesus was baptized by John at the start of his ministry, this voice, God the Father's voice, booms down from heaven. This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. Now, at that point in the story, Jesus, in his earthly life, hasn't done anything impressive. He has no followers. He's done no miracles. He was nobody. And God the Father is saying, that's my boy. I'm pleased with him. I'm proud of him. And then, in the words of author Tish Harrison Warren, Jesus is sent out with a declaration of the Father's love. His every action unfurls from his identity as the beloved. He loved others, healed others, preached, taught, rebuked, and redeemed not in order to gain the Father's approval, but out of his rooted certainty in the Father's love. And that's what he wants for us. We can work hard with no fear of failure. We aren't trying to win love. 
We are loved. So when you go through those booths in a few moments, go through the ministry fair, and you consider one or two ministries to join, you're not doing so to check something off a list and say, now I know that I'm good enough. Now God will be impressed with me. One of the pastors will be impressed with me. My spouse will be impressed with me. We just serve him because we get to work with dad. Now, some of you may say, wait a minute, I, I, I get that the law can't save us, but it sure seems like Jesus and Paul gave us a lot of commands. I, I would guess that they expect us to follow them. Is there no place for the law in the life of sojourn? Well, yes. And to show us why and how, let's, let's take Max and let's rewrite his story. We're going to erase all of his character development. We're going to come up with a new uh, character for Max. We'll see if his plot changes. So Max worked hard before marriage to win Ava, but never again afterwards because he'd won his prize. He let himself go physically, intellectually, relationally, spiritually. He'd won his bride. He was sure she'd never leave, and he was right about that. But in his complacency, his health suffered, his relationships suffered, his job suffered, And he died in his 50s of health complications that could have easily been avoided if only he would care. Now, did Ava love Max? Yes. Did Max love Ava? Or, let's put it this way, did Max put himself in a place where he was transformed by the blessing of marital union with this one he professed to love? No. When God brings us into his family and he gives us his spirit, we want to please and obey him. This becomes our why, our mission, our reason for doing what we do in his life. And it's not to prove ourselves or to earn what he's freely given, but because we're grateful for what he's done for us, and we trust him. We trust that he knows what leads to our flourishing, our happiness. Our why is coming from a different place. But what about all those Old Testament dietary laws and laws related to clothing and animal sacrifice and uh, cleanliness? There's some pretty weird laws in the Leviticus, if you've read through it. Uh, What about those? Laws like circumcision, which was a big deal to the original hearers of Galatians. Well, these ceremonial laws functioned like signposts pointing to Christ, how clean he would make his people, how perfect he would be, how holy he would be. And so Paul's argument here is if if we say, well, you know, uh, that's all great about Jesus, but I'd like to just stick with the signpost, we're rejecting the work of the one God sent to bring us to himself. So does this mean we disregard all those weird ceremonial laws, but we still have to memorize all those other laws in the Bible? Well, remember, Jesus himself summed up the law in two commands. Really one command, two parts. Love God and love others. So, because we trust that God is good, And he knows what's best for us. 
because we're gratefully saved and adopted us through the cross. We love God and love others. This becomes our new why, our mission in life, to love God and love others. And it comes from a place, from a motivation of trusting that God is good and knows what's best for us, out of gratitude because he saved us and adopted us through the cross. We find a new way to live, a new motivation for living and serving and giving and loving others is no longer drudgery because we're motivated by love, by gratitude, by trust in someone who will never let us down. So I always have a Monday challenge for you, something for you to do tomorrow or think about tomorrow. Uh, This is going to be your Monday challenge for today. I want you to ask yourself this question. What is your why? And where does it come from? When you came in and we handed you a bulletin, uh, there was an insert on the inside of it, one little sheet that if you fold it in the middle, it'll stack up. You could stack this on your desk, a table, somewhere where you're going to see it every once in a while. There's a Bible memory verse, Galatians 3, verse 11 on one side. And on the other side is this question. What is your why and where does it come from? This unassuming little thing may be the best gift I could give you because we all need to take stock of where we are sometimes. We all need to stop and and recalibrate, especially if you're thinking, life is not working right for me. I, I, I just, I'm burnt out. I'm bitter. I'm tired of people. Stop and ask yourself, what is your why? Is it loving God and others? And we Christians are pretty good about faking ourselves out. We, we memorize the right answers. So maybe you also need to ask yourself, after you ask, what is my why? To follow that up with, no, really. Because <laughs> you're going to memorize love God and love others, right? Okay, no, really. What is it? Is it to build your own platform in some way? Is it to prove yourself to somebody? What is your why? No, really. And then, even more important, perhaps, where is that coming from? What is your motivation? Is it trust and gratitude to the one who gave his life for you and still lives for you? Let's look at how this works out practically in, say, parenting. Maybe, uh, although, of course, you love your kids, maybe for one reason or another, your why in parenting has become so people will think I'm the perfect parent. Or maybe there's, so one specific person will think I'm the perfect parent. Maybe, so my parents will think I'm the perfect parent, and they'll realize this is the way they should have parented me. And, and you're having a horrible time with your parenting. It's coming from a deep place of insecurity that maybe you don't know what you're doing, or you're not enough, or in spite of your best efforts, things aren't going to go well. What if instead you stop and you, and you think about this and you, and you realize God gave your child to you? Now, you may never win a parenting, uh, Parent of the Year award from anyone here on earth, but the God who decides such things gave your child to you, and he knows what he's doing. Furthermore, that same God came, took on flesh, lived the perfect life for your family, died the death that you deserved, and he lives again so that you and your family can live a life more abundantly than you would imagine possible. 
And from that truth, from that place of trust and gratitude, you can parent well. You love God. You love your child. You love the people that your child is going to come in contact with because of all he's done for you and your family. I said earlier, we were talking about Adam, and I said that God, in his fairness, gave us the representative we deserve. But then, when we were utterly helpless, at just the right time, God, in his goodness, gave us the representative we needed. What is my why? Love God and love people. Where does that come from? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this one. And after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took a cup of wine like this one. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me until I come again. In just a moment, after we pray, you'll come forward tearing off a piece of bread and dipping it into wine or juice as your conscience permits. Those of you in the back half of the room will have a communion station in the back right in front of the sound booth. If you need gluten-free communion elements, you'll find them over here, my left, your right. If you are not a Christian, I'd ask that you don't come forward and partake of this ceremony because it symbolizes something you haven't accepted yet. But instead, I urge you to pray at your seat. Pray with the Christian who brought you to receive Christ, and then we can prepare you in the weeks to come to be baptized and to begin partaking of this meal with us. Let's pray.